This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, and I'm an associate digital media producer at Christianity Today, and I'm here with our editor-in-chief, Mark Alley. Hey, Morgan. Mark, it's snowing outside. Yes, I was just out there. I took my midday walk. It was very brisk. The walk <laughs> was brisk. The weather was brisk. Meanwhile, my bike is getting all is getting rusted. Rusted, yep. Okay. Whoa. I know. Wait, who is that voice? Who is joining us today? <laughs> oh, that voice, that moan. Well, that's your guest. <laughs> yeah. That sympathetic voice is Gerald McDermott. He is the Anglican Professor of Divinity at Beeson Divinity School. He teaches in the areas of history and doctrine. He's the author and co-author of many books, including A Trinitarian Theology of Religions with Harold Netland, Israel Matters, which just came out in May, and uh, a book that has some very practical consequences for lots of people called Famous Stutters, Moses to Marilyn Monroe. So we're, we welcome you, Gerald. Thank you, Mark and Morgan. Jerry, I'm so glad you're with us. I have a question about this last book that you read. How did you find the people to profile? Well, I had been keeping a list for many years of famous stutterers because I was a terrible stutterer. And I'm still a stutterer, but not so terrible. You know, it helps a stutterer to know that there are other famous people who somehow made it through and actually accomplished things in life. And one, about five years ago, one of my sons said, said, Dad, why don't you go ahead and write that book? And I took apart some time and it was the funnest book I've ever written. Did you, by any chance, or are you a baseball fan? Oh, I'm a, that's, that's my number one sport. So you, did you follow the George Springer story this year? A little bit. I heard about him, yes. And I was very interested. And I wish he could get a copy of my book to give himself some help. Because most people don't know about the stuttering program I went through, which I think is the best in the world. And that literally changes lives. Just for people who didn't follow the Houston Astros, who won the World Series, their story, they're one of their star outfielders has suffered from a stutter at various points in his life and has decided that he is going to be that person who is going to do that even if he's afraid of that or not. He ended up winning MVP for the World Series this year, and he's done a lot of different interviews. One thing that he did this year that was really cool is during the All-Star Game, he actually wore a mic, which is pretty brave that he did that. Whoa, that's that's very brave for a stutterer. I know. It was really cool just to see him come into his own. All yeah. right. It's not a baseball podcast. Sorry. But I just... <laughs> or, or a stuttering podcast. But... <laughs> Variety is the spice of life. Okay. Well, you're welcome to everyone who got to learn more about stuttering and baseball. I don't apologize for that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's get into the topic, though. Last week, President Trump announced that the United States would be moving its embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. While some American evangelical leaders have praised the move... Response from the governments of Israel's neighbors, as well as many Middle Eastern Christians, has been critical. The leader of Egypt's Coptic Church, 
Pope Tawadros II quashed an upcoming meeting with Vice President Pence over the move. As CT Middle Eastern correspondent and former Quick to Listen guest Jason Casper reported last week, Israel occupied Arab East Jerusalem in 1967 and passed a law in 1980 declaring the city its eternal, united, and undivided capital. But the United Nations declared the act null and void by a unanimous resolution in which the United States abstained. Palestine also desires Jerusalem as the capital of a future state. So American policy has been to leave the thorny issue for negotiation between the two sides based on the 1967 border. In 1995, Congress passed a law requiring the U.S. Embassy to move to Jerusalem unless the president exercises a waiver every six months. Every president since then has done so, including Trump, once. This week on Quick to Listen, we'll discuss whether Christians should care about the location of the American embassy, the divide between Middle Eastern and American Christians over Jerusalem's recognition as Israel capital, and where biblical prophecy fits into this discussion. All right, before we get into this discussion, again, a little reminder that this podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today. And you can do that by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. So Mark and I were chatting a little bit before this about the fact that we have an article in our December issue about the Holy Spirit, which is not always a topic or not always a part of the Trinity, I guess I should say, that we spend that much attention on. That's true. And it has to do with Christmas as well. And it's called A Pentecost, Pentecostal Christmas by John Whitvlate. And, uh, you know, I when I first read it as it came through in the galleys, I thought, well, this is good, solid. It'll be appreciated by the people who like theology. But it really took off when it went online, and people have really appreciated it deeply. And so we've basically said we put him in our kind of mental rolodex that we need to have him write for us again. He did such a good job. Absolutely, and I always think it's really wonderful to to just work at a place where I do get to read Christmas articles where I know we've tried to make and go an extra effort to really find a different angle in those. And since the Holy Spirit, I do feel like, at least in the traditions I'm a part of, generally will get talked about around Pentecost or maybe when we're talking about Jesus' baptism or, I don't know, some parts of the New Testament, but it doesn't get mentioned a lot. It's really cool to kind of bring that to bear during Christmas time. Anyway, I suggest anyone who would like to read this article or some of the other articles we have in our December issue or get our January, February issue, which is coming out soon. You can do that again by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen, orderct.com slash quick to listen. All right, Mark, let's give our gut checks for this news that has just come out. Well, when it first came out, I think I've said I'm not a political animal, nor am I a foreign policy animal, meaning I don't often understand all the nuances that are going on when things like this happen. I can just say it made me feel uncomfortable for for whatever, whether that feeling discomfort was rational or not, I have no idea. But generally when President Trump does something, it makes me feel uncomfortable because I feel like it's going to be pushing somebody's buttons needlessly. So that's it's a very irrational reaction. I don't have reasons for why I felt that way, but that was my gut reaction. So I would say that I'm totally with you. When it comes to Israel and Palestine, I generally feel like I just don't have enough information. I don't know if more information would somehow make the whole thing easier or whatever, but I, I that's what I generally think that I suffer from. I would say that my biggest reaction, though, was just kind of confusion, I guess, because there were quite a number of evangelicals that were praising and hailing the move. And some, though not all of these evangelicals, were also the ones that have been suggesting that we we should be there for Middle Eastern Christians. And Middle Eastern Christians 
at least the ones that were interviewed in our story, didn't show signs that they were incredibly excited about this move. And so I really wanted to get into what the disconnect was going on there, which is what we're going to do today. So, Jerry, what is the current situation in Jerusalem like? What is going on there? Well, you know, I just talked to a friend in Jerusalem, a Jewish friend, uh, just before this podcast started. He called me. I didn't call him to ask. And I said, what's it like? And he said, it's peaceful. There are not riots breaking out in the streets, despite the fact that the Arabs in Jerusalem are being fed the same story that the Arabs are up on the West Bank and down in Gaza, that when a major power like the United States does this, that means that Israel is going to get the green light to drive all the Arabs out of Jerusalem and to destroy all the Muslim mosques in Jerusalem. So despite the fact that the Palestinians in Jerusalem are being told this by the PA, the Palestinian Authority, there's what you might call the silent majority, who for a variety of reasons are choosing not to go into the streets. It is significant that you don't see Palestinians in in the streets of Jerusalem today, as you did in the summer of 2014, just before the Gaza war. And my Jewish friend said, you know, I said, David, are the Jews in Jerusalem tense? He said, no, we're rejoicing, it's Hanukkah. But but they're also grateful that reality is being acknowledged. And uh, yes, Trump is problematic in many ways, in my opinion, but he's acknowledging reality that ought to have been acknowledged long, long ago. Can you just give a sense of who lives in Jerusalem? You talked about Arabs. Obviously, there are many Palestinian Arabs. There are also Israeli Arabs. There are also many Israelis who are Jewish that are there. Who governs Jerusalem? How is the city divided physically, politically? Kind of set the stage for us there. There's over 800,000 people who live in Jerusalem. Jews make up roughly 62% of the population. Arabs, somewhere about 37% of the population, and a few others uh, in the remaining percent. The Israeli government uh, governs Jerusalem, but what people outside of Israel ought to know is that there are, there are Arabs in the Knesset. That's the Israeli parliament. There's Arab representation on the Israeli Supreme Court. There are Arabs at every level of society in Israel. But the Israeli government officially governs the city of Jerusalem. Now, the, how, how is the city divided uh, physically and politically, I think you asked, Morgan? It's divided basically into East Jerusalem and West Jerusalem. West uh, And both parts of Jerusalem have both Jews and Muslims, uh, Jews and Arabs living there. In West Jerusalem, it's more Jews than Arabs. In East Jerusalem, more Arabs than Jews. But politically, again, the Israeli government controls Jerusalem, but but not without Arab representation in the government. Why are there Arabs and Jews that live on both sides of the city? Because there are good things on both sides of the city that draw them. There are old Arab neighborhoods and old Jewish neighborhoods on both sides of the city that they want to live with their relatives and they want to live with their friends. And when we talk about the city being divided, what does that actually mean? Well, the city is not divided anymore. I mean, it was divided before 1967. But in in the Six-Day War, uh, it became a unified city, you know, thankfully for both sides. You know, so it's not a divided city. It's, it is like talking about, uh, you know, perhaps you could say uh, the south side of Chicago and, and the north side of Chicago. Uh, of course, there are 
there are very different political and ethnic tensions in Jerusalem than there are in Chicago, but that's a rough, uh, you know, rough analogy. That was really helpful. All right, shifting gears from Jerusalem itself, can you tell us a little bit more about why you think there are some American evangelicals who are really excited about this move by the United States? I think for two reasons. Number one, prudential. Second, prophetic the sense of prophetic connection. First, prudential. I, I, I think a lot of evangelicals, and not just evangelicals, a lot of people and Christians and uh, even some Muslims around the world see it as a matter of justice. It's the right of every country to decide on where its capital is. And Israel's government, its parliament, its residence for its prime minister, and its government offices have been in Jerusalem for 70 years. Uh, and I think a lot of evangelicals support Israel for also a sense of justice, that they see Israel as a light of freedom and democracy in, in a Middle East that is, that is filled with darkness, the darkness of tyranny. There is no other country in the Middle East where you can criticize the government openly, and I'm including Arabs here, and, and go to bed peacefully in your sleep and not worrying about being uh, uh, thrown in jail and tortured. Now, that's not true on the West Bank that's controlled by the PA, by the way. The PA is Palestinian Authority. If you criticize the Palestinian Authority or down in, down in Gaza that Hamas controls, if you criticize Hamas or the Palestinian Authority in these two areas that are controlled by Palestinian governments, by the way, you cannot go to bed peacefully at night. You will live in terror that you and your family will be tortured and imprisoned and maybe even killed just for criticizing the government. But in Israel proper, there are two million Arab citizens of Israel, and they regularly, the, the Arab uh, members of the Knesset regularly, openly, uh, by voice and also in writing, criticize the government severely, and, and they go to sleep at night peacefully, knowing that they will not be attacked. So no other country in the Middle East, uh, well, in every other country of the Middle East, including Egypt, free speech and the right of assembly are criminalized, but not in Israel. So for those prudential reasons, a lot of evangelicals um, support Israel and support last week what uh, Trump declared. The second is the prophetic connection. Uh, a lot of evangelicals still, I don't know what the percentage is. Uh, it, it's a lower percentage than it used to be because more and more young evangelicals are not Zionists and they don't support Zionism. But still an awful lot of evangelicals still see a prophetic connection between the Old Testament prophecies about the regathering of the, the Jews from all over the world to uh, the Holy Land that took place uh, in the last 150 years. They see that as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and also New Testament prophecy. You know, Peter says in his second Jerusalem speech in Acts 3, he talks about the coming restoration, apokatastasis, uh, that's the Greek word that is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, many times for the ingathering of Jews from all over the world to come back to the Holy Land. And Peter says this has yet to take place. So it was not fulfilled with the return of the Babylonian exiles. It was not fulfilled after the return of the exiles, you know, under Ezra and Nehemiah. It still is to take place. And uh, there's also an intriguing prophecy of Jesus where, where Jesus says in Luke 21 that Jerusalem will be trampled upon by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Well, starting in 1967, Jerusalem was no longer trampled upon by the Gentiles. So many evangelicals see this post-1967 period as perhaps 
a sign that the times of the, Gen- the, the times of the Gentiles are coming to a close. You know, that's another reason why they think there's a prophetic connection between the Bible and Jerusalem today. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Uh, so why do, uh, because we also, we also are well aware that there's a bunch of people over there, including Christians and Christians here, who say this was a terrible move by the United States government. Uh, why do they believe that? Why are they frustrated about that? Yeah, there's a number of reasons why they are frustrated. Uh, well, particularly Palestinian Christians. Uh, number one, they are rightly afraid that whatever the United States does will be used against them by their Muslim cousins. They, uh, Palestinian Christians and, you know, you know, Christians all over the Middle East are viewed by their neighbors often as a fifth column, as subversives from within because they're Christians and the United States is considered a Christian country and anything the United States does that Palestinian leadership does not like must be supported by the Palestinian Christians. They're obviously connected because these Palestinian Christians are evangelicals after all, and the evangelicals in the United States all support Israel blindly. And so it puts the Palestinian Christians under threat by their own neighbors. Second, you know, the Palestinian Christians want a Palestinian state. They are tired of the wall. They're tired of the restrictions on their travel into Judea uh, and Galilee. Um, they feel humiliated by the searches they have to go through when they cross over into Israel proper. Third, they too hear the Palestinian narrative that the Jews stole their land, that um, modern Israel has no connection whatsoever to ancient biblical Israel, that the Temple Mount never was the, the location of the temple, and these recent statements by the PA leadership I was uh, I was telling you about a few minutes ago that you know you know the United States is giving Israel the authority to drive all Arabs out of Jerusalem uh, and then the fourth thing I want to tell you about and, and and this involves Christianity today and I think Mark you yes I know you were the editor back in 2009 and and uh, if this is a bad thing I want to take no credit for it okay. <laughs> <laughs> well no it's a good thing okay um, it was all my responsibility you, then my son, Ross, who's a professional photographer, and I walked across Galilee in 2009, October 2009, and we did a photo essay on our walk across Galilee in search of what people in Galilee today, the land of Jesus, think of Jesus. I put on my reporter's hat, and I took out my yellow legal pad and a pen, and Ross and I walked up and down Galilee in the footsteps of Jesus, and we stayed at night with Jews and with Arabs. And we wanted to talk to religious Jews, to secular Jews, to Messianic Jews, to Arab Christians and Arab Muslims. And of all of them, and we got to talk to all of them on the ground as we walked, and of everyone we asked, what do you think of Jesus? I'm not here to tell you what I think about Jesus. I want to hear what you think about Jesus. And everybody wanted to talk about Jesus. They were thrilled to be asked, especially by someone who is writing an article 
in an American magazine. But there was one thing that happened time and time again is when we talked to Arab Christians, they would pull me aside and they would whisper and they would look to their left and to the right to make sure no one else was listening. And they would all say, don't use my name. And they all said the same thing. You know, you probably think that our big enemy is the Israeli government. It's not. That's what the media will tell you. And that's what our leaders have to say, because if they don't say that, then we will really get into big trouble. But what they don't dare to say is that our number one enemy is not the Israeli government. It's our Muslim cousins. They are killing us and they are humiliating us. Our wives can't even walk down the street with their heads uncovered without being called whores. Our sons cannot walk down the street with a cross around their neck without being threatened, their lives being threatened. That's what I heard over and over and over again. And that's something that I think your audience needs to know. The other thing I would add here is just that you've, you've used the word frustrated about the uh, border crossings and the searches and the humiliation. I would just add, whenever I have a conversation with a Palestinian uh, Arab, the tone of their resentment against Israel is is quite profound and quite deep and quite bitter. So it's not just oh, yeah. it's not just the word frustration as we understand it or humiliation, but there's a deep abiding anger there. And uh, I'm not in a position to say how just it is or how unjust it is, but it is there, and it is some it's a reality we have to take into account. Jerry, you had mentioned when you were speaking a little bit earlier all the different religious and political factions that exist among Israelis. Why don't you first break it down in the, in the Christian community? First, what is the Christian community made up of in Israel? What different types of Christians? Well, the Christian community is quite diverse. You have Catholics. You've got Arab Orthodox, mostly Greek Orthodox. You've got Messianic Jews. A lot of Messianic congregations have sprung up in the last 20 years. They've grown by leaps and bounds. And you've got many Arab evangelicals. And they don't all see eye to eye. And they don't all agree. Uh, obviously, they don't agree theologically. Uh, they don't all agree on, on strategies for, you know, dealing with the many difficult problems, uh, you know, political and social. So, you know, a little bit like the United States. <laughs> yeah. And then how about among the Israelis, who are the leading uh, religious and political forces? There are the Israeli Arabs who are very grateful to live in Israel. They know it's the only place in the Middle East they can live in religious freedom, particularly if they're a different kind of Muslim, particularly if they're Christians. Uh, you know, what you don't see are Israeli Palestinians wanting to move to some other part of the Middle East. They know their living standards are higher in Israel than anywhere else in the Middle East. Now, for instance, you've got your Aramean community. Now, they aren't Arabs per se, but most, most people outside of Israel would call them Palestinians. Um, Shadi Kalul is a leader, and I have an excerpt from him in Israel Matters. He writes a whole chapter in the book, The New Christian Zionist. And this is the community that still speaks Aramaic. They love being in Israel. Uh, you know, Shadi Kalul is very, very grateful. Now, that doesn't mean that he's uncritical toward the Israeli government. Yes, the Israeli government has broken some promises to the Aramean community. But he basically loves living in Israel. He says, here I can raise my children as Christians in freedom. Here I can worship uh, the, the Trinitarian God in freedom. I don't have to be afraid. Uh, he, he ran for a seat in the Knesset. He lost, but he had the freedom to run. Uh, he said, my children, my family uh, have access to the best, to world-class medicine, healthcare, and world-class education. So what, what we don't realize is that there are many, there's a silent majority of many, many Palestinians. Now, those who live in Israel particularly, who, uh, who live in Israel proper, these two million who aren't so bitter, but they're grateful to be in the Israeli government, and they don't want to live under the PA. They're terrified 
of living under the Palestinian Authority, which controls the vast majority of the West Bank. And they would never, ever, ever want to go to Gaza and live under Hamas, which is an absolutely totalitarian government. And and the PA is corrupt and not much better. And uh, as I told you, there's no freedom of speech on the West Bank. From what you're saying, then I can we can infer, though, that there are some Israeli Arabs who are a little more vocal about their disagreement with Israel and their frustration. Oh, of course there are. You know, the, the you know, you know, the only safe thing you can do really, really safely is to criticize the Israeli government. When you say you like the Israeli government and you're an Arab, that's when you run into trouble from your fellow Arabs and particularly Muslims. So we never hear about that because it doesn't make news. It's not spectacular. All we read about uh, are the violent demonstrations, which, by the way, are usually stage managed. And and these young men are often paid to uh, do all these demonstrations. And then on the Jewish-Israeli side, what would be the main factions that government leaders are always trying to balance their interests? Well, I mean, you have so many different factions. Uh, you have the far right, the ultra-Orthodox, uh, the Haredi you know, faction, the, the men who, who uh, wear the beards and uh, dress all in black. And then you've got the modern Orthodox who are not dressed like that. They are dressed like most Americans dress. Now, they're still Orthodox, but they're not ultra-Orthodox. But they're Torah observant. You know, Torah is the first five books of the Bible. Uh, they follow Mosaic law. Then you have many, many Jews. Well, you have so-called secular Jews. Now, you'll often hear the vast majority of Israelis are secular Jews. And, and you know, to us, we hear that, and it means atheists. Oh, they must be, you know, all atheistic and agnostic. Not so. Not so. Secular Jew in Israel means something very different from secular Jew in this country. In Israel, it means you don't like the, the religious establishment, the rabbinic establishment that control marriages, that control much of the synagogue life, and you disagree with it, and so you're a secular Jew. Now, um, that means that you don't go to synagogue weekly, but you probably celebrate the High Holy Days. There is actually, and this is under the radar, there's actually a spiritual revival going on in Israel today, but you'll never hear, you know, read about it in the, in the media. Uh, many, many, many of these secular Jews, particularly amongst the Russian Jews, who have, you know, a million Russian Jews have come in in the last uh, 20 years from, or 30 years from the old Soviet Union. And they don't have much of a Jewish background, so much more open to all sorts of things spiritual. But, but even the, non, the non-Russian Jews, there's a vast, what we would call spiritual revival going on of people waking up to the God of Israel and realizing there is a God, and it's the God of Israel. He's the true God. And asking questions and enrolling in classes. And I've seen this when I'm in Israel, just walking around talking to people, and my Israeli friends tell me about it. And at the same time, there is, you know, for the last 30 years, the numbers of Messianic Jews have increased something like two or 300%. So, so things are happening spiritually in Israel, but, but most of it is under the radar. So, Jane, back to Jerusalem. You know, obviously Jerusalem has cultural and historical significance to Jews. What exactly makes it religiously significant to Christians? Well, I mean, Christians, uh, you know, especially evangelicals, read the Bible. And, you know, Jerusalem is everywhere in the Bible. It plays a profound role in both the Old and the New Testaments. In the Old Testament, it's you could say the symbol of God's rule over the earth, particularly through the Davidic dynasty that culminates in the Messiah. Jerusalem is the place of God's most visible presence. Now, of course, God is, you know, the Bible says omnipresent. He's all over the world. 
But as even Jonathan Edwards, whom I've written some books about, wrote, God's all over the world, but he's more present in Israel than anywhere else in the world, according to the Bible. And it's interesting, Jerusalem, in the Old Testament, Yahweh says to his people, he says, there in Jerusalem shall my name be. I will put my name there. Special manifestation of my presence, in other words. Jerusalem is often used in the Bible, particularly the Psalms, or uh, and Zion is a synonym for it, to stand for Israel as a whole. So when blessings and curses come on Jerusalem, they are taken to be actually coming on the nation as a whole. So the destruction by the Babylonians of Jerusalem in 586 BC is a judgment on all of Israel. And in the New Testament, Jerusalem is the place of pilgrimage by Jesus' family, Mary and Joseph, several times a year, as it is mandated for all Jewish men, three times a year, the Jewish feast. Uh, His parents went to Jerusalem regularly. His aunt and his uncle, Elizabeth and Zechariah, went to Jerusalem regularly for Jewish feasts. Uh, Jerusalem is the site of Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' ascension, and his giving of the Spirit to the church at Pentecost. Jerusalem is, you know, we we Christians, we evangelicals, uh, typically have a, from Sunday school, and even from, a, you know, a lot of scholarly literature, have this view of Israel as having totally rejected Jesus. And that's why Jesus predicted the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Well, most of that is right, but not the word totally. A lot of us don't realize that in Acts 21, it's uh, James and the the elders of the church in Jerusalem, and they're all Jews, uh, said to Paul, there are myriades who believe in Jesus as Messiah of the people here in Jerusalem. They're all Jews. Now, one myriad is 10,000. Myriades means tens of thousands. So it, a minimum of 20,000 Jews in Jerusalem were believing in Jesus, the Messiah. Now, that's maybe a decade or two after the resurrection of Jesus. And speaking of Jesus, um, Jesus predicted in Luke 13 and elsewhere in the Gospels that one day the people of Jerusalem will welcome him. And he suggests, Acts 1 suggests that, that when he returns, he will return to Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives, and the book of Revelation. Jerusalem is prominent in the book of Revelation, uh, talking about the new earth, that Jerusalem seems to be, according to uh, you know not only Isaiah, but also the book of Revelation, the center of the new earth. We see that in Revelation 21. In Revelation 11, Jerusalem's called the holy city. In Revelation 20, it's called the beloved city. In Revelation 14, the lamb, Jesus, is going to stand with 144,000, where? On Mount Zion. And Gog and Magog, sometime in the future, whatever that means, are going to surround Jerusalem. And we read about that in Revelation 20. So Jesus suggests that Jerusalem has great importance, not just in his day, but in future days. The thing that's hard for us Americans to grasp, who who don't have the same connection often to a piece of geography like, like people in the Middle East do, it's just hard for us. We just tend to relativize places. Well, if uh, if you you know, if Jerusalem's causing such a problem, why don't you just call something else a capital? Or if if you're really having problems in this country, why don't you just move to another country? What's the big deal? But in biblical thinking, certainly in Middle Eastern thinking to this day, one's geography is very much a part of one's identity. Those two things cannot and just will not be separated uh, by a simple political act. And it's one of the reasons so many of the problems there are so intractable, uh, certainly from our perspective. And I would say, I would just affirm, this is purely subjective, (laughs) but when you say that God is specially present in Jerusalem, when I've visited there three times now, that's my subjective existential experience when I'm there.
I've, I've had the same sense. You know, I grew up spiritually. Well, I, I, uh, you know, I grew up as a Catholic, but then became an evangelical, uh, you know, during and after college. And I was trained as an evangelical that all this business about holy places is just superstition until I started to see all sorts of things about holy places in the Bible. And then climbing Mount Sinai before dawn, I sensed uh, something profound. And going to Israel and Jerusalem, I sensed something profound. And I would say this is a biblical concept that we we evangelicals who tend toward a sort of Gnostic-like dissociation from matter and place are not really understanding the minds of the biblical authors for whom there are indeed holy places. And Jerusalem is the holiest place on earth. I'm glad that you guys are bringing up this stuff about places because as we noted earlier in the intro, Palestine also desires Jerusalem as the capital of their future state. Can you explain a little bit about where that claim from and where, why historically that's that's important to them as well? There's a difference here between the Muslims and the Christians. Uh, the Muslims, and, and of course the majority of Palestinians are Muslims, the vast majority. The Muslims say that Jerusalem is their third holiest spot on earth. First is Mecca, second Medina, and third is Jerusalem because in Surah 17, uh, in the Quran, It talks about Muhammad's famous night journey. Uh, And according to Muslim legend, this took place one night when Muhammad was in prayer and he was lifted up by God. Uh, Evangelicals are familiar with translated in the spirit to Jerusalem from Mecca to Jerusalem. In this night, he was set down, his feet set down on what is now the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. And then he went up to Jerusalem. paradise and talked with God and talked God down to five times a prayer a day for many more times per day and heard many other things that cannot be uttered that he could not utter a reminiscence reminiscent of Paul in second Corinthians 12 and came back down to the Dome of the Rock in uh, Jerusalem and then back to Mecca all on the same night this was his famous night journey uh, and so it's it's for this reason that they say that Jerusalem and the Dome of the Rock is the third holiest site in the Muslim world. Now, historians have challenged that because uh, the word Jerusalem is not mentioned at all in the Quran and certainly not in the story of the night journey. So some critical historians say that this this uh, legend and this association with, with Jerusalem was a later uh, Muslim tradition that was not original to the Quran, but was sort of attached to the Quran. But anyway, that's now Muslim tradition that 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 this is the third holiest site. And and for the last 30 years, uh, I remember when I was uh, on 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 one of my 14 trips to Israel and I was in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount with 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 some Muslims, some sheikhs, some some Sufi sheikhs who were quite high leaders in the Sufi community. And it was proved to them by the Jews in our little group with them that the Temple Mount does indeed go back to ancient Israel. And this was indeed the site of Herod's temple. I'll never forget this Sufi sheikh said, we have been wrong because we've been telling our people that the Jewish temple was never here. This is a lie and we must start telling them the truth. But unfortunately, that truth has never been been spread widely. Muslims continue to be told and even many Arab Christians there continue to believe that the Jews have made this all up about Herod's temple 
uh, you know, the Jewish temple, uh, being there on the Temple Mount. Jerry, what are your own convictions about the United States' relationship to Israel, and how does your faith inform those convictions? I do believe that, and and what really woke me up was was about 20 years ago, uh, rereading Romans 11, 28, and 29, where Paul says that the non-Messianic Jews, the Jews who had failed to accept Jesus, and Paul's writing this, you know, in Romans, probably toward the end of his career, and he's saying these non-Messianic Jews are still beloved to God. They're enemies of the gospel, but they're still beloved to God, and their gifts and calling and the two gifts of the covenant were sons and, and land are irrevocable, he said, cannot be revoked. And all of a sudden it dawned on me what dawned on most Christian theologians in the 50s and the 60s after the Holocaust and scratching their heads and asking themselves, how in the world could the most Christian country, the most Christianized country in the world, Germany, birthplace of the Reformation, how in the world could it have permitted the Holocaust? And so many Christian scholars went back to Romans 9 through 11 and realized that they had been misreading and they hadn't noticed Romans 11, 28, and 29, where Paul says of the non-Messianic Jews that they're still beloved by God. In other words, God's covenant with Israel did not stop in 33 AD and get transferred to the mostly Gentile church. His covenant with the Jews is ongoing. And so, uh, Morgan, I came to the, to the realization that the present state of Israel, with all of its imperfections, and hey, no state is perfect. Uh, last I looked, the American state was pretty imperfect. That, that the Jewish state is what protects the covenanted people. The people of Israel are still theologically significant to God. I did attend a, le- a lecture. It was at the Hartman Institute, and I can't remember the scholar, who said the, the problem here in Israel is that Israel really does have a right to the land, and the Palestinians really do have a right to the land, and that's what makes the issue so intractable. Was that something you would agree with or not? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, um, and and the Israelis have shown time and time again that they want to share the land with their Arab brothers and sisters. They have accepted three plans for partition, all of which the Arabs have rejected. So the, you know, in, in Galilee and Judea, millions of Arabs live alongside Jews. And sure, there's tensions, but the Jews have no problem with Arabs, you know, living alongside them on the same street as neighbors. But when it comes to Arabs and Abbas and the PA, their vision is is of a land where eventually the Jews are not present, particularly in the West Bank. They don't want any Jews in the West Bank at all. You've helped me, even though I've been there three times, I've done a great deal of reading on it. You've helped me just get some greater insight. So thank you. Appreciate it, Jerry. Just a reminder to everyone, you can give feedback about this podcast on Twitter at CT Podcasts. All right, now is the time of the show we call Precious Moments, where everyone shares something that is bringing them joy this week. Mark, are you ready to go? Which was our staff Christmas party yesterday. Yeah. That's a nice annual event we have at a very nice restaurant in downtown Wheaton, and everybody dresses up a little nicer. The place the place is well decorated. The food is excellent. The fellowship is wonderful. So it was just a nice, nice lunch. And we found out that one of our coworkers got engaged. And we found out how. <laughs> very, cre- very creative man who did that, yeah. What's your newsletter called? It is called The Galley Report, and you can, can subscribe to it by going to uh, Christianity Today slash The Galley Report. That's G-A-L-L-I. 
and subscribe to it. It's a weekly. I link to four or five articles and comment on them. All right, Jerry. What fills me with joy, and interestingly, I'm preaching on joy this Sunday at our Anglican church uh, for Gaudete Sunday. I am filled with joy as I think about the my uh, three sons and their wives and their uh, nine children, nine of our ten children, all of whom will be converging upon our house for about four days around Christmas. We're, we're really so seventeen of us will be getting together at our house. That's awesome. And I'm filled with joy as I think about that. Are you on Twitter at all or on social media? Yes, I'm on Twitter. Uh, I've got a blog called the Northampton Seminar that I put things out about once a week. What's your Twitter username? Dr. G. R. McDermott. Awesome. Cool. My precious moment for this week is kind of strange, but whatever. I got caught in the snow. There's a ton of snow on Monday, and I had to ride my bike in it for like half an hour. It was actually just like very, I don't know if it was fun, but I, the snowflakes were so huge, and I really love snow. And last winter was kind of pathetic when it came to snow. It didn't snow in January or February. So this is kind of like the first really awesome snowfall, at least that I had been outside for that in, in a number of months. So I really enjoyed that. Listeners need to be aware that Morgan does not own a car. She rides her bike to the train station and from the train station takes her... (laughs) Takes the train into Wheaton from downtown Chicago, then rides the bike to the offices. Oh, 15 minutes of that bike ride. And she does this all in every season of the year. She is, she is, she's my hero. I can't, I just. Yeah, Mark only rides his bike like three times a year. (laughs) She is a wonder woman. Yeah, she's a wonder woman. I'm just so impressed with her. But you don't, I mean, if you don't own a car, I'm just saying also, my life would be so much more miserable if I owned a car. Yeah, but I think I, people like ah, with people like look ah, at me and ah. they feel sad, and I look at them and feel sad. You know, when you're no, like, I don't feel sad. I I just am impressed. Well, thank you. All right, guys, that's my claim to fame: biking at CT in the winter. That's the that's the part. It's mostly the wind. The wind is the, really the evil thing. Yes, yes. People can find me on Twitter at m e p a y n l. All right, that's it for us this week. Thanks for everyone again for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. You can rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can give us your feedback about this particular episode on Twitter at CT Podcasts. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or most places where podcasts are available. This podcast is produced by myself and Richard Clark and Cray Allred. And we are so thankful to you all for listening to another episode this week. Merry Christmas. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.